Hi, it's Alan Smithson here. Today we're speaking with Dan Lehiskar, founder and chairman of Eon Reality, a world leader in virtual augmented reality-based knowledge transfer for industry and education. They believe that knowledge is a human right and it's their goal to make knowledge available, affordable, and accessible for every human on the planet. We're going to find out how in the next XR for Business podcast. Dan, welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you so much. I'm really, really excited. I know you guys have, have been working, well, you specifically have been working in the 3D virtual space for uh, for many years now. How did you get involved in, in VR and learning? In my past, I used to work with simulators, big aircraft simulators, etc. And I got really excited about seeing the effect it has on pilots and soldiers. And I always thought that it would be useful to do the same, but for normal people, uh, nurses, etc. But obviously, these people couldn't afford a $50 million simulator. So I had to be patient and wait until the computers followed more slow, became cheaper, faster, better. And by 99, uh, the hardware was there, so you can start running this on PCs. Um, so I, we were very early adopters of virtual reality already in that period. We're talking 20 years. Most people know VR and AR uh, as kind of something in the last five years. What was it like kind of going through this growing pains of going from a million-dollar simulator or millions of dollars simulator to now we can buy an Oculus Quest for 500 bucks? It's been an interesting journey with a lot of ups and downs. And very much VR has been like AI. I'm sure you've read about the AI winter uh, when things didn't go that well. We've had quite a few ups and downs in, a, in virtual reality. 99 was fantastic because that was the era of dot-coms. And we started with something called Web 3D. So you can do 3D on the web and had actually millions of users. Then we had a hard landing 2001, as you may remember, when dot-com crashed. And we had to move our business from industry and education to defense because we had September 11. So that was kind of what saved our business. Uh, doing Homeland Security Centers and the like. And then slowly and surely, we picked up the business uh, up to 2007, 2008. And during this period, there were several iterations. There was something called people avatars and virtual worlds that was very popular around 2007 that raised and crashed also pretty tough. But we, we managed to navigate those water until I would say 2011, 2012, when the hardware became available for mobile devices. So this was before Oculus. Already then we could see where this was going. Oh, you guys, you never lost your path. You, you've veered a little bit from military to industry and education, back to military and, back, and then back to industry and education. Obviously, the passion is in the, the industry, uh, knowledge transfer and education. What are some of the projects that you guys have done in the last few years that really just made you go, wow, this really is something that quote unquote normal people can use? So you're right. We realized quickly that the biggest value has to do with knowledge transfer. And we start thinking, how can this technology be used to solve big problems? And we identify three areas. One is government. We have an initiative that I'm happy to talk about we call Human 2.0 or Enhanced Humans. And we roll this out with more than 50 governments around the globe, national governments. Then we have obviously initiative for academia, 
which we call Classroom 3.0, which is transforming education by experiential learning. And then we have a third group we call Industry 4.0 or our Enterprise Solution. And in each of these sectors, we have concrete projects. So in the government sector, we do something called interactive digital centers. Those are pretty big investment from governments, can go up to six, seven million dollars per location. And I'm just about to inaugurate the new one now in Morocco, of all places, that we work with USAD. And what we are focusing on this, uh, this bigger project is to address the gap of skilled, smart workers. As you know, technology is a big killer of jobs, but it's also a big creator of jobs. And in this creation process, we have to teach new people new skills. And virtual reality, augmented reality, proves to be very efficient there. That's one type of project. With, with education, we do the same. We work with big universities. We work with regions. And again, there is to help students learn faster, retain information longer, and make better decisions. And industry, we work with two areas. We work both with the area of productivity increase, predominantly using augmented reality, but also with learn train, training using virtual reality. So that's very broadly what we do. I can go into the specifics if you wish. Why don't we break that down until we've got kind of these large government centers. You, you mentioned they, they cost between six and seven million dollars. What is in that? What are, you, what are they getting for that? What is the value created? So uh, concretely, there are four elements in the center. The, the biggest one is a dissemination machine to up to seven to 10,000 uh, users. We have a platform. Uh, our, we call the augmented virtual reality platform that essentially does both. It's a mix of virtual reality, augmented reality, and mobile-based solutions. So it works agnostically on everything from an iPhone to a very sophisticated headset. So that the first part of the center is to essentially do a regional deployment. I'll give you an example. We just done one in Bologna, in Italy. Uh, so, so that deployment is done both with the university, University of Bologna, which is 60,000 students, and it's done also with the industry, the Ferrari, Maserati, Ducati, all this industry that they have there. So that's the first part. The second part is we have a showroom, and this showroom displays all type of technology from large screen environments, room size environments, we call iCube, to headsets. So people actually can not only be aware of this technology, but understand what it does. The third element of this is an IP and content creation. So we have something we call the VR Innovation Academy, and we retrain local resources how to develop and deploy virtual reality and generate local IP. And the fourth element is a marketplace. We have something called the Vault, and the Vault contains lots of assets that we accumulate over 20 years, developed by ourselves or partners. Think about it as a Netflix. <laughs> but containing virtual reality objects, objects and application focused in knowledge transfer. Uh, so those are the four elements of a center. When you're building these centers, I guess you mentioned universities and then industry. I assume government is involved in that. What are the benefits then to the university? Is it more to their students up to speed? Because you mentioned also the knowledge transfer or, or content creation using local resources. Is this something that the universities are using to bolster their employment uh, statistics? Or Yes. So if you look at academia in general, there are three big problems today they have. One is a quantitative problem. They need to teach more with less, less time, less money. They have a second problem, which is a qualitative problem. The, the skills that they used to teach, which is remembering and learning, 
uh, understanding, they are not any longer applicable. You have to now do analyze, evaluate, create. So it's a different type of skill set. And the third problem is what I call the sage on the stage. Since 1400, we used to have a guy standing in front, typically a guy, standing in front of a lecture hall and, and preaching. Uh, and that doesn't work any longer because today's students are social learners, multitaskers, short attention span. So you have to, universities start to realize that they have to do something different. And that something different is what I call experiential learning. So rather than just teaching you about logistics, we give you a Heineken brewery and you learn logistics within that context by solving a problem. Now that is fantastic, but it's pretty expensive to get your hand on a nuclear power plant or, <laughs> or brewery. Uh, and that's where virtual reality really comes to play. So Eon has the world's largest library. We have 870,000 assets. So if you say, uh, let's say, particle accelerate and CERN, wow. we have it. <laughs> uh, so we, we, what we did is we went to vacuum cleaned all, all 3D warehouses and created these building blocks. And then we developed a platform because today, th this is a big problem. I don't know if you realize, 82% of universities have tried VR and AR, 82% in some fashion. But when the majority of them, I would say 90%, do not pursue it. Why? Why do you think that is? They don't see the value in it. Uh, for one, my second guess would be that it's too expensive for two. The third one, in my opinion, would be uh, the fact that they just don't know what to do. You, you're pretty much right. Uh, they see the value. The value, most people understand the value. Expense is a problem because if you want to roll this out to 8,000, you have to buy Oculus to everybody. Or even that's too expensive, right? But the biggest problem is actually they don't have the content, right? It takes time to develop content and it takes skills to develop content, right? So, and, and I would say that's the biggest one, right? Uh, I just was recently with a university in Mexico and they spent $4 million on equipment, but they don't use it because they had only two or three curriculum that they can use. And it took them two years to develop it. So fundamentally, we address these problems with our platform. Number one, our platform works on any device, right? So if you have your iPhone or there's 4 billion of smart devices, so you don't have to have a fancy headset. It works with a headset also, but so that's how we eliminate the cost aspect. Then the other aspect, make it easy. How do we do that? If you're familiar with IKEA, right? IKEA, you buy your furniture, build it yourself. So our mantra is easy. Uh, it stands for effortless. So I can teach you to develop an application in less than one hour. And the skill set you have is PowerPoint or less. So you don't know anything about coding, Unity, Unreal. So that's the first one. The second one is affordable, right? So for $12 a student a month, you get access to the full platform. The third one is self-service. So that's the part of do it yourself. And the third, fourth one is interconnected. So you can interconnect. I, I kind of, it was a segue from your question about academia, but academia wants to do it, most of them, and they, they want to do it, but they don't have a way. So we help them with a platform to integrate and deploy this, not to 30 guys in a lab, but to thousands and thousands of students, affordable. So how do you then get people to learn how to do uh, Unreal and Unity without teaching them? How does that work? Let's dissect the problem with content creation in virtual reality. So there's three elements to this, uh, if you think about it. There's one, you need to get data in somehow, right? Okay. So you need to get 3D models created. So 
And the other second thing is you need to bring that to life. So let's say you bring a piece of machinery. When you push a button, something needs to happen. And thirdly, you need to publish this on something, right? Whether what it's a headset or... And then, of course, you need to manage it. So the traditional way to do it is to use Unreal or Unity. And that's what we used to do. And that, that takes a lot of time. So after about 10 years of doing that, we said, wait a second. 80% of the time, we do these repetitive things that we can make it easier. So we don't have to go in scripting and coding. Because 99% of our customers don't have a clue how to do that. So what did we do? First of all, we getting data in. We teamed up so you don't have to create models. You can go in the library and search about 870,000. And if it happens that your specific model that you want is not there, you can also import 120 different formats. So CAD, Autodesk, Siemens, Dassault. We, we teamed up with SAP so you can do that. And it happens behind the scenes. So you just drag a model in and it pops up in the application. So that solves the first problem. Second problem is bring that model to life. How do you do that? So we created a non-code interface that allows you to do a number of things. Easy, as easy as PowerPoint, if you want, I can go more in detail on that. And the last one is publishing seamlessly to anything. So that's the platform. And uh, we have a lot of lectures uh, in our website how to do it. Uh, and we are coming up with a freemium model, actually, <laughs> later this month. So you will have a free version also of the platform that you can play with. So basically what you've done is you've uh, templatized the creation of virtual and augmented training. In reality, yeah. You got it. So right. you, yeah. All right. So is there anything you want to touch base on the showroom? Uh, not so much. To be honest, the showroom's value is diminished because if you go back five, ten years, there were no major producer of a hardware, right, for virtual reality. So we kind of had to integrate our own systems. We had something like iCube. I don't know if you're, it's like a cave. Basically, you walk in and you're surrounded by walls and you get the same experience but that you do in a headset, but we still yes, have Yes, I've been in one of those giant caves. They're awesome, except very nauseating. Yeah, if you don't know what you're doing and if you have a <laughs> if you have a bad matching match between the refresh rate uh, especially if you do roller coasters or stuff like that. There, yeah. Then uh, why, but, uh, why do VR people show roller coasters as the first experience? Stop doing that. Anybody listening, stop doing that. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. true. Then you talked about IP and content creation using local resources. So how does that work? So for, let me give an example. So we teamed up with Loyola University in Chicago and the best ophthalmologists, among the best in the U.S. And... Uh, they were very interesting to use this for learning how to examine a patient. What's the process? Because a lot of students are not comfortable to do it, do that physically. So they had all the knowledge and we had, of course, some resources and we had the platform. So we team up together. Uh, this IP is developed, validated by the university and the experts there. And then once when that's created, first of all, of course, they use it themselves. And then in a span of a few months after releasing that, we had everyone from Harvard to Stanford to purchase uh, this application. And then we do a revenue split between us and the university. And th that IP then propagates, is put in the vault in the marketplace, um, and it's sold around the world. Pretty awesome. So kind of like, uh, how would I say, maybe, well, I guess the Unity Asset Store would be the same. Only instead of for games, you're doing it for learning. 
yes, you can, you can say that. And it is important because you still have customers that not even want to create, even if it's easy, they just want to buy something off the shelf. And uh, th that's where we have the vault, right? The vault contains not only building blocks, but full applications that have been certified by an expert because we are not experts in ophthalmology, right? Or, or almost any of the areas we cover. Oh, interesting. So I, I guess, you know, you're relying on your partners to, I guess, help develop, not only develop, but, but certify it yeah. to make sure that it is doing what it says. Now, how, how do you deal with that? So let's say, for example, you work with a university in the U.S. to develop this content, and then somebody in Europe wants it, but maybe the education is a little bit different. How does that work? Basically, it's, uh, the, the idea is a large amount of our customers don't want to basically learn how to create content themselves, and they much rather prefer to get a flying start by selecting existing assets. So we have this looks almost like Netflix with description of each application. And then we have a needs assessment session. And during that session, we, we walk through them, what exactly they're interested in, how they want to start. And then we together pick up uh, maybe a dozen applications for a pilot uh, and subject to their satisfaction, then they can get full access to both the platform and the vault. You do uh, a trial with them, say, hey, here's uh, 10 pieces of content, try it out uh, for a month and then pay us and you have access to everything. Yeah, I mean, we, we are flexible. Typically, we want to make sure that there is a, a, a genuine interest. So we, we do insist on having this type of session, a workshop, mm -hmm. essentially, where we fully understand their needs. We make sure that we under-promise, over-deliver. But once we establish that and establish that they have a genuine interest in a budget, so assuming that they're happy, they will purchase, yes, no problem. We can give it for them for 30 days at no cost. How do you... I, I guess the question I have is they, it's a Netflix. So is it like Netflix $7.99 and all you can watch? Or is it $3 for this and $4 for that or $500? For, I don't, I... Yes. So uh, we are not yet there. We have two types of sales. We have what I call top-down, where it means we are approaching large organizations or national governments or regional governments. And that's when we do this maybe 10,000 licenses at once, right? And then we have what we call bottom-up, when we start with much smaller things, right? Uh, as little as uh, 50,000. But we typically are B2B. We are not yet B2C. So if an individual person wants to use it, we are coming out this month with a freemium. So you can actually get to test everything, but for a lo low amount of cost, but you don't have all the features. Uh, for example, lesson creation, you can do five lessons, uh, an application, but that's it. So we are coming up with models, but we are not yet at the Netflix level with the all-you-can-eat buffet for a amount of money. But but it's it, it's it's going that direction. Yeah, I, I think everybody's trying to to figure out the Netflix model of everything. And then of course Disney Plus comes along out of nowhere. One of the things that uh, has come up previously on the podcast is 3D models and the fact that there's no standardization. Uh, you mentioned that you work with SAP to kind of import any types of 3D models. Can you talk us through that? Yes, absolutely. So this is a well-known problem that we've had for 20 years. Even in the previous platforms, the, the more advanced ones we used to do that require programming skills, still you have to be able to import. And originally when we started, we, you have to import to neutral file formats. But if you do that, you lose a lot of data. So you have to go native. Not only do you have to go native, you have to, if you want to support a Boeing or Airbus or any of the big companies, you have to support 
various versions. So, for example, CATIA, which is a DASOS CAD system, you have to support version 6, 4, 6, 7. And to do that, it requires a lot of resources. So what we did is we looked at who's the best in the world to do that. So we worked with two or three companies. One of them was not long ago acquired by SAP. So that's why we have that partnership. And we basically licensed their importers and embedded in our platform, but make it much more easier for someone that doesn't know a lot about CAD and polygons and polygon reduction. So that's our approach. And then we also assure that as new versions of CAD come out, that we are compliant with that because of this importer. So currently we can support 120 plus formats through these various collaborations we have, which is pretty much <laughs> everything except the obscure formats. And it's not only CAD, right? It's also, if you want MRI device data or uh, you have GIS data, the uh, beam data, so it's, it's or scanned data, or even 360 videos. Oh, we support that too. It's kind of crazy if you think about it, the world of 3D, 120 formats. And for people listening, if you don't understand what this, imagine JPEGs, you wanted to send a photo to somebody, but there was 120 different photo formats that you could send to somebody. <laughs> and not every phone or device would accept it. <laughs> this is crazy. <laughs> yeah, it is. there is a reason it's not so easy content. You have to tackle this problem. Otherwise, you don't get even started without the model, right? It's true. It seems like one of the non-starting uh, uh, issues with all of 3D, not just VR and AR, but even just putting something, because you mentioned uh, when you first started out, you had web 3D back in before 99, you said, I think. You had 3D on web. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we, we, we did start with that, which was quite fantastic. I still, I mean, we had a very large contract, more than $5 million with the Office Depot to do furniture configuration of chairs and office planners where we had hundreds, thousands of SKUs of furniture. And it was used and it worked <laughs> uh, very well. And we, we've done configurators for Suzuki's motorcycle because they make most of the money on parts, right? But those were kind of kiosk-like settings in, in a dealership where you basically picked the favorite bike you have, and then put all the gear that you want, saddlebags, everything you want, and then automatically we got you the price, etc. So, so that type of things we had to do then because nobody was wooed by virtual reality. So how do you make money and support yourself? We've been self-funded since 2001 as a company. We don't have any VC money. We just make money based on the value we provide to our customers. And that puts us in a pretty unique situation. Amazing. It really does. Then you look at something like Blipper, who raised 110 million, actually more than that, 110 million dollars, and then went bankrupt in a four-year span. What are your thoughts on that? You know, it's nothing different from uh, .com or any any similar cycles uh, that you have this hype curve. People come in, they overestimate the benefits, underestimate the issues, the practical things that you have to fix. Then people realize the problems with it. That happened with .com exactly. And then most of the companies then crashing. And then there are a few that survive, small companies like Google and eventually people like Facebook and others, and create this revolution. And I, I don't think it's different in anything. It's the same uh, happened in VR. And the, the interesting thing with VR is we've had these cycles three, four times during 20 years. You may not remember, but there was a VR revolution back in 95. 
and I was part of that. <laughs> there were clunky headsets. You basically had oh. to have something supporting your head. And then we had a crash 2001, and then we had another crash in 2007. A billion dollars was spent on virtual worlds. I don't know if you remember that, that wave. Blipar is part of this, uh, and, and Blipar is not the wrong, uh, I mean, I would say 90% of Chinese VR companies went bankrupt the last two years. And you have similar, you know, in US, a lot of hardware companies that like, uh, they're not any longer around. And it's, you do take a big swing from an investment perspective and it, you're all in. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. We have a slightly different approach to it because um, <laughs> we, we, we are owning our shares and we, we care about our customer and we, we don't take huge risks. And it proved to be a marathon, right? If you told me in 99 that virtual reality didn't take off still, in fact, to, to be very honest with you, what happened with me is that by 2007, 2008, I said, this is it. I, I'm quitting VR. I mean, it's a wonderful business, but it's more lifestyle business. Yes, we make money and yes, we grow, but this is not going to be a billion dollar business anytime soon. And I was instrumental to take when I was 37, a company to $500 million. So I was like this. So what I did, <laughs> I left the company still being a big shareholders in custody of my friend, this current CEO. And I said, I'm going to do something totally different. So I went into smart devices. I created a company called GreenWave, GreenWave System with a friend, former CTO for the consumer department at the large IT company. And we took that company to $250 million between 2008, 2009 to 2011. And I was planning to never come back to virtual reality. So then I get a call in 2011 from my friend and he says, Dan, you have to come back. He said, why? It, virtual reality is coming back. I said, no way. It's not going to happen during a lifetime. And, but then I came back and visited, and I saw that his order picked up and the volume of business picked up. And I said, what's the secret? And the secret was very simple. The thing you have in your pocket, right? These phones could handle applications that we used to run for Aramco for million dollars systems. You could run it on your phone. So then I realized, wait a second. This is earth shattering. And VR has been the love of my life for long periods. So I said, I have to come back. So I sold my shares with Greenway, came back. So then I came back and said, okay, let's take a hard look at the business and see how can we grow it. We have fantastic customers. We have a good product. We have a good reputation. We do make money. We actually know how to make money, which is not so easy in this business, as you know. So why, what, how can we expand? So then we came up with this idea. Why don't we take our knowledge? and share it with various locations around the world by building centers. And those are the centers I was just talking about, right? So we embarked with our team. We went to 130 different countries, <laughs> visited predominantly with uh, governments and universities. And we, I think we had a problem solution to the problem, what keeps them up at night? That's what I typically take. If you ask a minister in a country in Europe, what keeps him up or her at night? Most likely the answer will be that I'm worried about uh, the jobs. I'm worrying about the disruption that technology causes because it kills and creates so many jobs. And I wonder what in 10 years, what's going to happen with all these displaced people? And how do we take a truck driver that today will become unemployed in the next five years? We can turn into a coder, right? That's not going to happen. So what we do is we help them to use virtual reality and augmented reality to train them to become welders or nurses. And that's the programs we put together with government, right? 
So we came up with the idea to set up this center to solve big problems, not small problems, right? Because if you talk with a minister, the virtual reality is not on a top, probably not top 100 list. <laughs> so anyway, so we start setting up those large centers and then we partnered each location with either governments or, or institutions. And this way, we not only had a presence in all these places, and, but could grow the business, but we also had a customer because oftentimes these governments want to do workforce development, they have concrete projects, and that allowed us to expand the business and have a presence that today, although we don't have investment, I think we have more locations than Magic Leap that has a $2.7 billion investment. They've spent an enormous amount of money and we, we shall see. No, no, no. Just, you know, we, we, I'm just going to Vegas to see us and I'm we, together with Magic Leap. I think Magic Leap is a wonderful product. We are very proud to announce that we, we are releasing the platform now in January together with them. And um, the actually senior vice president of Magic Leap, John Guetta, joined our advisory board. So we, we, re, we think it's a great company. So is, I think, Microsoft with HoloLens. And uh, so, so we try to stay, I'm from Sweden, so we try to stay neutral <laughs> with, in this context. We like neutrality. I love it. All right. Uh, is there anything else that you, you think you want people to know? I'm very excited about success stories, right? And uh, in our company, we have a, a three-word mantra. Build the platform, sell the platform, and make customers successful. And it's, if you sell a software as a service platform, you're not better. If a customer wakes up tomorrow and says, okay, I don't like the platform any longer, I'm not happy with it, then they stop paying and we charge per month, right? So, so it's customer success is super important. And we are just about to release a series of, from 28 countries, customer success stories, right? We, we published, I think I published one of them just recently in my LinkedIn and we are rolling those out. Because people are curious, and in the first six hours, I had 1,000 views because people really are hungry for, okay, so we, we understand the benefits of VR and AR, but show me someone that actually ambents. No, I don't want to hear from you. I want to hear from these customers, why they use it, how they use it, and why they continue to expand. So that's something that uh, we put a lot of effort in, and you'll see a lot more news uh, from us in that context, letting, giving the customers a voice. That's wonderful. I think that's what's been missing. A lot of people over the last few years have been saying, oh, VR can do this. AR can do this. We could do this. But when you think about it, there's not been a lot of people saying we have done this and here's our results. Yep. Yep. That's correct. And by the way, uh, we don't really think AR, VR, mobile, it, it is in our context and for our platform, and it's mainly the same. But if I was to think about it a bit deeper, I would put it in three buckets. Uh, the first one, and this is what, how we approach our product also. The first part of our platform is for learning, right? You, you use it to create content to learn. The second part of our platform is for training, to apply what you learn, right? And the third part of this is performing. So once you learn and train, then you, let's say, get, let's say you work with engines and you get to Alaska and you have to repair that engine and you may not remember all the steps. That's where AR and the contextual knowledge injection comes to place. So those, those are, it's a learn, train, perform. And that's how we see that more or less all the customer success stories, they evolve. They may take baby steps in the beginning with learning. And we want them to make it easy because if you tell a large corporation, even an Exxon, 
that, oh, you want to roll out to 10,000 workers? Oh, you have to make 10,000 Oculus. They get discouraged. They will never do that. But if you tell them that, yes, we can roll out 10,000 workers, but you can use your tablet, existing tablet, even your own devices. And then slowly, let's say you have 10,000 users on these devices and you have maybe 100 headsets. And over time, as the headsets become cheaper, faster, better, you can have more. So, so I think that, that has been a big limitation for a lot of companies that try to sell platforms because they are dependent on the higher devices. And let's face it, the larger devices have disappointed, right? Even great guys like um, Magic Leap or HoloLens, if you look at the figures of units, how many they've sold, they're not that much yet, but it will come. Uh, it's just a matter of time. So our strategy is to make sure that we satisfy customers today tens of thousands of users with an organization at an affordable way so they don't have to wait for the cheaper, faster, better devices. That is some really amazing uh, advice. So uh, I, I think uh, with that, I think we should wrap it up. Any final words, Dan? No, other than that, I'm a little bit like a kid in a candy store. You know, I, <laughs> ah, I plan no. my next 7,000 days, which if 7,000 days is about 20 years. So I hope with good health and exercise and a few other tricks in my bag, I'll be a part of this amazing journey. It's just fun to be around and see this revolution in VR and AR. Well, what problem in the world do you want to see solved using XR technologies? Ah, that's, that's quite simple. <laughs> I'm sure you've seen Matrix, right? Where you get to take the blue pill or the red pill. I have. I think humanity at the moment is at the bifurcation line. You can take the left turn, which means that Increasingly, machines take over humanity's role in workforce. And if you believe, if you believe scaremongers on AI, that eventually they take over completely, but at least take our jobs. So you have a huge amount of population that we, we render useless, right? So that's one vision. The other vision is that we become human 2.0, enhanced humans, where we stand on the shoulders of machines use our curiosity and blend ourselves with machines. I think things like Elon Musk is working to put wires into your head. I think that that's going to take too long time. In fact, if we wait for that, by then the machines have taken over. So I think AR and VR has a huge importance to create that bridge between man and machine. So instead of today interacting with machines at speed of thumb, which is very, very slow, we operate with machine at speed of sight. And we get the information, the machine knows where you are, who you are, what you want to do, and it feeds that information to you and you become, have this superpower. And that's the future that I'd love to see for us. And that's what I will try in whatever capacity I can to do for the next 7,000 days. But man, thank you so much, Dan. Here's to the next 7,000 days. Being an influencer on LinkedIn in the XR field uh, really has opened up an opportunity for us to not only understand what corporations are looking for in virtual augmented mixed reality and artificial intelligence, but also from the aspect of the startups, studios, developers, and enthusiasts out there and what they need. So what we decided to do after getting hundreds and hundreds of messages is to open up XR Ignite to the entire XR community of startups, studios, individuals, passionate people, and really to build a new community 
that brings together everybody who's passionate about this technology for a low cost and allow them to contribute, to learn, and to get better across the whole industry. That is really the reason why we started XR Ignite, to hyper-accelerate the XR for business industry, business and education. And one of the things that we just keep noticing is that there's so many resources out there. There's the VRAR Association, which we're partners with. There are you know reports coming out daily, but there's no one source where people can come together and start just having conversations around how to get better in this industry. And that's why we started XR Ignite. I would encourage anybody who's listening to this podcast, if you're in the corporate side, if you're a startup, if you're an individual, if you're an enthusiast, sign up today at xrignite.com and you'll be getting access to new reports, investor lists, media lists, exclusive content, interviews with our mentors. We have over 56 mentors. And if you're a startup and you pay an annual fee, you'll actually have the opportunity to book a one-on-one, one-hour call with one of the mentors. What we're doing with that is we're actually recording those sessions, we're transcribing them, taking out any personal information, and we're making those transcripts available to all members. So I think XR Ignite is gonna drive a lot of value for anybody in this industry who's looking to up their game, and also for corporates who want a real insight as to what technology is coming out. So I would encourage everybody to sign up at xrignite.com, and I really look forward to driving value, executing on our mission to hyper-accelerate XR for business and education.